0: Again, we're in Exodus 11, and uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one under one of the seats around you. We're going to be bouncing around a lot in this passage, uh, but before we jump into it, why don't I go ahead and pray for us. God, we come before you, and uh, our our desire (coughs) this morning as we gather is to be transformed by you. God, throughout our weeks, we just are guilty of just going through uh, the, the, the tasks that we have, the obligations, and we rarely take the time to really just sit back and think about You and what You're doing in our lives and the way that You work and the things that You want to grow us in and transform in us. But in this moment, we want to just pause and reflect on You and the way You work and and how you save and transform your people. And so God, I pray that you would teach us that we would walk out of this place different than the people we walked in, even if it's just a little bit, uh, that we would understand and love you more in the way that you love us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this week we are picking up where we left off last week in our study of the book of Exodus. If you were here with us last week, we looked at the first Nine of ten devastating events that God brought upon the land of Egypt. And as we discussed, God did these nine events for a few reasons, but we just, I'm going to summarize it real briefly just to jog our memory. Uh, first, he did all of that because Pharaoh would not let his people go. That's the most obvious. And so it happened as God said it would that it would take a strong hand and a mighty arm to get Pharaoh to release his people from their slavery in Egypt. That is the primary reason of why God did that, at least from a human level. Second, though, we saw that God brought these events upon the land of Egypt to show His superiority over all of the other deities and gods that were worshipped in the land of Egypt. This was a spiritual battle in the literal sense of that expression. And in each and every case, in each and every event, God showed that Moses and Aaron were superior in regard to their being prophets, superior to the magicians in Egypt because they had the Lord with them, and that God Himself was superior to all the gods that they worshiped in Egypt. And then thirdly, we saw that God brought these events down on Egypt as a demonstration simultaneously of both his mercy and his justice. One of the standout features of these events is that God is at the exact same time both savior of his people and judge of those who do evil and wicked things, particularly when those things are against his people. And so now as we come to the 10th and final plague, the one that will result in Pharaoh releasing the Israelites from Egypt there are more things we're going to learn about God particularly the God who saves and what we are going to discover is not just that God saves we've already established that God saves now we're going to look at how he saves in other words how is he able to be both as the apostle paul put it in the book of romans just and the justifier of those who believe how is he able to do both of these things and and i think the answer to that will be clearer by the end so this section in exodus like i said there's a lot going on there's a lot of movements there's a lot of different scenes and so to help us get through this i've broken this up in four scenes and we're going to look at each one of them together not necessarily chronologically through it but bouncing around thematically. Scene number one will be the announcement and enactment of the final plague, which is, spoiler alert, the death of the firstborn of Egypt. So that's scene one. Scene two is the institution and celebration of the Passover, which would become uh, the religious celebration of God's deliverance from Egypt and establishment of the nation of Israel. It would be like our 4th of July. I mean, this is the big celebration, but even much bigger than that. So, that's scene two. Scene three is the exodus itself as they left Egypt. This, we have finally arrived to the climactic moment of the book of Exodus. And number four is the consecration of the firstborn of Israel to the Lord. That'll be in chapter 13. Those last two we're going to look at much more briefly. I don't know if that's grammatically correct, more briefly than the first two. Uh, But we're going to look at the first four scenes, looking at the first one, which is the announcement and the enactment of the final plague uh, there in 11 and then going on to chapter 12. But let's go ahead and just read all of chapter 11 together. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants… And in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt. "...such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out." Then he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger." Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. This scene in chapter 11, this announcement of the final plague, is actually an elaboration of the conversation that was going on between Pharaoh and Moses at the end of chapter 10. If you just want to look there in your Bible briefly, those last few verses, we read that Pharaoh threatened Moses, and and he said, if I see your face again, you will surely die, of which Moses responded to him, I will not see your face again. And as Moses begins to walk out, he's like, oh, but I've got one more thing real quick, uh, Pharaoh something that God has told me before, it's a warning from Him, uh, that should you continue to reject Him and His Word and not let His people go, then He will kill all of the firstborn of Egypt from the least to the greatest. Moses knew this was going to happen. He knew it would come down to this because God told him it would all the way back in chapter 4, before he even entered back into the land of Egypt. This is what it says in verse 21 of chapter 4, and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So what was foretold to Moses was now being told to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, this is your last opportunity. And, and please understand, I think some people struggle with these texts because we struggle with them. This was a just penalty for their past act of attempted genocide against God's people when they murdered all the newborn sons of Israel. And on top of that, there are 400 years of oppression against them. And so God in this moment with this final act was going to bring about a total and complete judgment upon them. And with that judgment, at the same time, deliver His people from their bondage. And just like all the other events, this one also had deeper implications. God wasn't just doing this thing, but more things even beyond that in the background. And what I mean, again, is He's not just simply delivering Israel, He's not just judging Egypt for the things that they did, but God was bringing this about to show that He is supreme over the gods of Egypt. The Egyptians, as many of you know, were obsessed with the afterlife. I mean, today you can go to Egypt and visit the pyramids, and why are they there? Because they spent a lot of money and a lot of investment in the afterlife. This is just a cultural fact. And so, one of the more prominent gods that they worshiped in Egypt was the god named Osiris. He was the god of the dead, and his name meant the Mighty One, He Who Has Sovereign Power. And he had an assistant god, and his name was Anubis. He was the god of the underworld, and and it was believed that Anubis supervised the embalming process and guided the dead during their passage to the afterlife. And interestingly, if you go back and look at uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics and drawings and things like that, Anubis is depicted with a human body and the the head of a dog, which may suggest a little tone of irony in verse 7, when God says that not a dog will growl against my people Israel, which is to say Anubis will have no power over the Israelites, the firstborn son of God. So, the warning is given, and once again, (coughs) we read that the heart of Pharaoh was hardened toward God and toward the people of God. And when Moses saw that Pharaoh wouldn't listen, even after that warning, he has the most human response there in verse 8. It says that he left In hot anger. I mean, isn't it only natural? You would rather let your own people die than let my people go. This is the choice that you are making, and naturally he is frustrated, angry. Righteously, probably so. Of course, his anger would get him in trouble later on, but that's another story. But this was Pharaoh's choice. Now all that is left is for God to fulfill what He said He would do. So, like I said, we're going to bounce around in the, in the scenes here. And again, these chapters aren't written chronologically. They're written thematically, and you'll see what I mean as we go on. So, let's jump ahead to verse 29 of chapter 12 and see the tenth plague enacted. At midnight, the Lord struck down Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said, take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Again, I think there's many modern readers of this story who struggle to understand why would God do such a thing? assuming maybe that there had to be within this massive amount of death, there had to be some truly, genuinely innocent person who suffered an unjust fate at the hands of God. But the fact is, is this couldn't be further from the reality. The fact is, every single Egyptian was guilty before God of attempted genocide against the Israelites. Back in chapter 1, we are told this. The last verse of chapter 1 says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The sin of Pharaoh was passed down and made everybody guilty of murder and attempted genocide. God judged the nation of Egypt for their national crime against humanity and against God's people particularly. This was not an unjust punishment for innocent people. This was a just judgment for the guilty. Theologically speaking, we must understand that all of God's judgments are righteous and true. Yes, in our day and age, we see a judge, they don't always make the right decision. A jury doesn't always make the right decision, but God always makes the righteous decision. And that is certainly the case here. And it wasn't as if God did not give them opportunity to repent. Over and over and over again with word and deed, He was trying to convince them. I am God, and you are not, if you would just bow down, and they would not. But just like God said it would, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. And finally, Pharaoh commanded the release of the Israelites. That's the end of scene one. We'll look at the follow-up, which is the Exodus, when they actually leave. That's scene three, but we need to look at scene two. And, but as we consider that final plague, uh, we must understand that it took the judgment of God on the firstborn sons of Egypt to bring salvation to Israel who is called the firstborn son or God's firstborn son. But again the question in the text is not will God save, but how does God save his people? We see that he saves through judgment, but how else does he save? And to answer that we need to look at this scene too, which is the institution of the Passover. Let's read Chapter 12, 1 to 13, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. This is January 1 for them, right? This is the beginning of the year. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. We'll stop there. So, right in the middle of the story of the final plague, sort of parenthetically, there's this other story of the Passover, this institution and the celebration of the first Passover of Israel. And there's some observations that we can make about it. First, we see in verse 1 that the Passover marked a new calendar for the nation of Israel. And, and the resulting exodus was the beginning of the nation of Israel. Like I was saying, it, it would be like their 4th of July. And, and for us, we celebrate the new year on January 1. For them, it would have been a different date. Nevertheless, this day was significant. This was the birth of their nation and their festival. This feast marked the beginning of that. But secondly, this feast not only was brought about as a newness, but it featured the death of a substitutionary lamb. And there is considerable detail given for the kind of lamb they were to eat and how they were to eat it and what they were to do with the blood of the lamb and without restating all of the details. Essentially, what this was meant to picture was each person's participation in faith in the substitute that God provided for them. That instead of their firstborn sons dying in Egypt, a lamb would take their place and he would die in their place. For God even said, this will be a sign for you. And what exactly is the sign communicating to them on their doorpost? It was the sign that death had already visited this house, but not them directly. Instead, a punishment was paid by another. And this sign wasn't just for them, was it? Because even God said, and when I see the sign, so it was for God too, that when He saw it, He would say, death has already been to this house, and as a result, He would pass over them. And this meal was to be eaten in a particular manner with particular garnishes, they had to be ready, as if they had to leave at any moment, which was a reminder of them leaving in haste. They had to eat it with bitter herbs, reminding them of their bitterness, uh, their time in Egypt and the bitterness of indwelling sin. So there was a manner in which they ate it. And thirdly, this feast was to be celebrated throughout their generations. Just look real quick at verse 14. God's desire in setting up this significant holiday in their calendar was not only to remind them of the national birth, and it wasn't just to remind them of the way of salvation, that it's through the substitutionary death of another in their place to atone for their sin, but it was also a tool for discipling the next generation. Look down at verse 24 of chapter 12. God says, "'You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever, and when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as He has promised,' You shall keep this service, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Dad, what are you doing? (laughs) This is strange. You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Every time they celebrated this holiday... They were obligated, inclined to tell the story of when God saved His people and how He saved His people from slavery in Egypt, that it was through mighty acts of judgment and it was through His mercy He gave them a way out so that they didn't experience the same judgment that was happening to the Egyptians. And as they were sharing this story, which was to them the gospel of salvation at that time… And when they were sharing this with each generation, they were stirring up faith in their children to continue to trust in the God who saved them back then and who continues to save still. So again, the Passover marked the beginning of their calendars, reminding them of the birth of their nation. Second, it taught them that salvation is only possible through the substitution and death of another and third, it was a tool for discipling future generations. That is what the Passover was communicating. Now the question is, well, who can do it? Who should participate in it? And we gather a little bit early on in chapter 12, that's the people of Israel, that they should do it. And, and should they not do it, then they'll be cut off from Israel and, and therefore the blessings that flow from that. But a fuller answer is given later on. Look with me at verse 43. Verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. That is nobody who is not an Israelite. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him, meaning he received the covenant sign of belonging. Verse 45, no foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. In other words, this meal was for God's people and God's people alone. But if someone converted if someone who was not ethnically born a Jew they could convert from their former faith and believe in the God of Israel and now identify with his people and essentially become an Israelite if you've read the book of Ruth you know sort of the famous part where she says your people will be my people and your god will be my god she is converting from her former faith to now belonging to the people of God. If they want to do that, then they could come in and participate in the Passover and experience all the blessings of belonging to God's people. But this had to be done in faith. And if they were a male, then they had to receive the covenant sign of circumcision showing that they belonged to the people of God. Now, with all that said, we as New Testament Christians, we need to connect some dots because all of that was for them then, what does it mean for us now? Because as we fast forward to the New Testament, we see that a new substitute was given. For the former sacrifice of the lamb was merely a shadow, a picture, a a band-aid for a greater healing, a greater sacrifice that was to come in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, as a reference, he says Jesus is the Passover Lamb who takes away our sins. When Jesus, on the night that He was betrayed, when He instituted the Lord's Supper, what we oftentimes call communion… He did so during a Passover meal, and that was very intentional. And by so doing, He fulfilled what they were doing in former times, the uh, observance of the Passover. He fulfilled all of that and then instituted a new uh, spiritual practice, uh, a new observation that wasn't necessarily about deliverance from Egypt, but about our deliverance from sin through the atoning death of Jesus as our God-given substitute. He was the perfect and spotless Lamb of God whose bones were not broken and whose blood doesn't just cover the doorposts of our house. That would be really weird. It would, his blood covers... Uh, spiritually speaking, by faith, our whole lives. He covers our sins past and present and future. And as we were just singing a little bit ago, because of His blood, we are washed white as snow, where God sees us as clean, not guilty of any of those sins because the innocent life of Jesus Christ was substituted for our guilty life. It's what uh, scholars often call the great exchange, my guilt for His innocence and His death, I get life. It's this beautiful picture. You see, in the Exodus, God saved His firstborn son, Israel, by judging the firstborn sons of Egypt. But in the gospel, which is a much greater word, God saves us and calls us His sons and daughters by judging His only son. And this He did on the cross. And this we remember every week when we take communion. And today, much like in the Passover, those who are able to participate in that practice when we take communion are those who believe in God's Word, those who identify as His followers, who believe in Christ as their Savior, and ordinarily, as they say here, have received the sign, the covenant sign of belonging. For them then it was circumcision. For us now it's baptism. This is the sign of the new covenant. And when we belong, then we receive these elements and we teach future generations of what God has done for us in Christ. So those are some of the dots that we need to connect from this story then to us now and what it means for us and our faith and our practice. But there's still more. For the sake of time, we're going to move faster through these next two scenes. Scene three is the exodus itself. After the final judgment that God brought upon Egypt, Pharaoh relented. He released the Israelites. But this is what we read about the Exodus itself. Uh, chapter 12, verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. For they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Hey, can you enter, you know, empty out your 401k for me? That'd be great. And uh, they did. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Verse 38, a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Jump down to verse 40. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts which can also be translated as armies of the Lord, went out from the land of Egypt. Remember at the beginning of chapter 12, uh, it says that Moses told them to ask for gold and silver, and the Israelites evidently did ask, and, and they did receive all that they asked, as God said they would to Abraham hundreds of years before in Genesis 15. God gave Abraham a vision that his people would be taken captive, live in a land for 400 years, but that He would deliver them, and when they leave, they would come out with great possessions. That is fulfilled here at the end. But the imagery of this moment is that of a military victory. Through the power of God, they plundered their enemies. The armies, the hosts of God left that place and destroyed the land of Egypt. That's the picture we are to see here Furthermore, though, as I mentioned last week, we see that as they left, they did not leave alone, but a mixed multitude was also with them, people who were not just ethnically Israelite, showing that God was also saving some of the Egyptians who were looking at the situation from the outside and going, I don't think the gods of Egypt are real. I don't think they're providing what they're saying they're providing for me, but this God he is something we have never encountered, and they broke away. God even set them free from the false idolatry found in Egypt, which was again proof of God's covenant promise to Abraham that he would bless them, that is his descendants, but that through his descendants bless all the nations of the world. We see that happening right here. Gentiles, non-Israelite people, being brought in, grafted in, adopted into the family of God. That is the Exodus story. And finally, the last scene in the story that we're going to look at is the consecration of the firstborn in Israel. And again, we're going to jump through here, but look at the opening of chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate, or set apart, to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. Look down to verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as He swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, "...or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? Dad, what is going on? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery." And just real simply, what this part of the story shows is that there is an inseparable relationship between redemption and consecration, between salvation and holiness, between God saving me from my idolatry, from my sin, from my past life, and now me living a life that reflects that God has actually brought me from darkness to light, from death to life. I actually have to live a different way. It has meaning for every single day in the way that I live. I have to live for His eternal purposes. Liberation from slavery is what God did in a moment. Freedom from sin is what God did in a moment. Mercy over judgment. These are all facets of salvation, but they're just really the beginning and yet continuing on of that. The purpose of salvation is not to give you a get-out-of-hell-free card and then for you to just go on living as if you can just do whatever you want. Paul talks about that in Romans. Salvation is about entering into a set-apart, distinct life with God where you live it completely for Him. That's the good news of the Exodus, is that God will save His people, and that God has saved his people, and that God has gone into great detail to tell us how we can be saved as well. We can't make up our own way, there's only one way, and it's through the substitute that he has provided, and he has provided that supremely in Christ. And through faith in his word and mighty acts, God continues to save today. We get to celebrate communion here in a moment, and hopefully we do with a little bit clearer picture of what God has done for us in Christ. But why don't we pray, and then uh, we'll transition to doing that. God, we come before You again this morning that knowing that, God, You have done great and mighty things for Your people. And somehow, God, You are able to be both just and the justifier. You are able to be both a righteous and just judge, and yet at the same time merciful and gracious and kind. And Lord, we're, we're thankful, Lord, that You have shown us kindness, that You have opened our eyes, that You have brought us from darkness to light, from death to life, from being separated from You, from our sin, and, and now brought near through the blood of Christ who is our sacrificial lamb. Thank you that, that he paid the ultimate price so that we could live life with you once again. Lord, help us to live in light of that every single day to not try, having begun in faith, to now continue on in works and think that we are uh, sanctified by our works, but instead it's all by Your grace and all by what You do in our lives. Help us to continue to walk in that, Lord, and then to teach others how they themselves could do the same, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.